this is the same case where the Department of Justice years ago described the JP Morgan Gold and Silver Trading Desk as a criminal enterprise. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Mark is here with you for Arcade Economics. And in today's video, we're going to dig into the recent news that includes JP Morgan Gold and Silver Traders finally beginning their trial where they, a couple of their executives are facing RICO charges. This is the same case where the Department of Justice years ago described the JP Morgan Gold and Silver Trading Desk as a criminal enterprise. And after a series of delays, things are finally underway and started. So we'll dig into what is going on there, as well as some of the other news affecting the gold, silver, and economic markets. As you can see, Precious Metals business at J.P. Morgan Chase operated for years as a corrupt group of traders and sales staff who manipulated gold and silver markets for the benefit of the bank and its prized clients, a federal prosecutor told jurors in Chicago. Now, to be fair, the defense obviously has a different view of what actually went down, although here, this case is about criminal conspiracy inside one of the world's largest banks to make more money for themselves. They decided to cheat. The trial of three former J.B. Morgan employees, including the veteran head of Precious Metals, Michael, Michael Nowak, is the most ambitious effort yet in a years-long U.S. crackdown on market manipulation and spoofing. Unlike past cases of alleged trading fraud, Trio is accused of a racketeering conspiracy under the 1970 Racketeer Influenced and Corruption Corrupt Organizations Act. So certainly significant charges they're facing. The three defendants could face decades in prison if convicted on all counts. And spoofing banned by the law in 2010 involves huge orders that traders cancel before they can be executed in a bid to push prices in a direction they want to make their genuine trades profitable. While canceling orders isn't illegal, it is unlawful as part of a strategy intended to dupe others. When this trick works, there is somebody else on the other side of the trade that lost. Somebody got ripped off. And while I know spoofing is a bit of a complex concept, and not the most straightforward thing. In a minute, I'll play a clip from Bart Chilton when I interviewed him, former commissioner of the CFTC. And I explained my understanding of what was happening, which is what has led me to continue following this story and silver markets and how they're priced over this past decade. Although before we get to that, just to present the other side here, lawyers for Nowak and Smith offered jurors a much different view saying prosecutors had misinterpreted how and why orders are made in precious metals markets and insisted defendants had never intended to deceive anyone. They said the government had cherry picked trading data to create the false impressions that the traders were spoofing when they were actually placing real executable open market orders. And it does raise the question, in order to win this case, the prosecution must prove beyond a reasonable doubt what was going on inside Mr. Smith's mind all of those years. So I would imagine that will be one of the key challenges for the government in this case. But although, as I mentioned, I'd like to play this clip. It's about four minutes long, but I think it is still pretty relevant so that you can hear a little bit of the detail about what Bart Chilton expressed when he was doing his investigation, which in terms of how the manipulation is actually orchestrated, let's hear what Bart had to say about that. Again, I appreciate you mentioning the spoofing because my understanding of how some of the manipulation has occurred 
is that, you know, if silver is trading $20 and five cents, there's a lot of stop orders placed around the $20 handle. So often if the price can get pushed a little bit, then you get a lot of those high frequency algorithms kicking in and then you'll see a drop with many feeling that people kind of nudging a little are then able to buy lower. Does that right. sound like a reasonably accurate portrayal to put it in perspective to folks? Well, it's a, it's a good portrayal, it's a good portrayal, but it's actually, it's a very good portrayal, but it's actually also a reflection of what I was just speaking, speaking about, of how trading has changed. So even back in 2008, 9, 10, um, maybe a little bit of 11, even when a lot of these silver trades and some gold trades were pretty suspect when you're looking at them, you didn't have high-frequency traders in these markets like you do today. Right. And they're still not all over them. But spoofing meant one thing when it was, you know, an average person out there, you know, saying they're going to sell 100 lots of something and trying to tick the price up a penny. And then uh, once it goes up, then they offer, you know, half a penny. Mm -hmm. If, if they get it to go up a penny, they offer half a penny and they make a half a penny where they weren't going to make anything. Uh, and then they pull back those other offers for a penny, right? So they, 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 they say, I'll sell these things for a, a, a penny more than anybody else is offering. And the price ticks up and a couple of people may take advantage, uh, but then they pull back the offer real quick. And then they, try, they say, now I'll sell it for this amount. And they get a bunch of buyers. So markets are changing and so you have these high frequency traders who are getting into more and more areas and at first they weren't really they weren't into futures uh, they weren't into commodities uh, but now they're getting into them uh, particularly oil some of the larger trader t-bills um uh and they're getting into gold and silver um and the less so like pork bellies and live cattle and stuff but uh, you know uh, it, it, what they want is volume high frequency traders i call them cheetahs uh not that not because they're like boston card cheaters but because they're uh, fast like uh, the market cheetahs cheetahs in the jungle and, and uh you know they're trying to prey upon any little time lapse that they can see and but they got to have volume to make those changes and, and they serve a purpose the cheetahs because they add liquidity to markets so if there's somebody who wants to buy or sell uh, cheetahs will take them. Uh, they'll, they'll do it. They're just going to offload it one way or another uh, in the meantime, and just will be so quick that uh, they're trying to make uh, uh, you know just little micro pennies in nanoseconds. So uh, the difference in your description is that today, when a market moves because of a spoof, it can move a lot more. There are Bart's comments. I'll let them speak for themselves. Again, one of the questions that people often ask is that why would you assume that the price is always suppressed down? And I don't think that that's always the case, although one of the reasons why I think there has been a move in that direction, again, from some of the trader transcripts that came out of the Deutsche Bank case, here you see May 11th, where UBS and Deutsche Bank are basically talking about what they're doing in the market. UBS Trader A says, we smashed it good. Again, I'll point out the reason I have that particular one, May 11th, 2011, 
That's when silver is still coming down from $49. And you can see on the day that they smashed it good, the price did fall $4. Now, if you look at the bank positioning, you can see often when the banks get less short or even flat or long, that's usually when the price rallies begin. So I do think there's a degree to which it moves in both directions. Yet certainly evidence that on some of these waterfall declines, there are big moves down and in terms of what you also see with a lot of paper often being thrown on the market and the price just plummets, does usually seem to be to the downside. And one of the articles I've been reading about the case does mention that we may be getting access to some of the JP Morgan chat transcripts. Could only imagine what is on there, but a complex case that hopefully will shed some light on what's actually been going on. Although in terms of now, here's another clip that came from a different part of the interview with Bart that I think would be relevant and explains some more of what happened during this period, which is when these guys are under trial for. So what Bart's talking about here, which goes back over a decade, but that is the time period that these traders are standing trial. So we'll play a minute of what he said here. Well, there's some stuff that's out there in the public that I'm not sure everybody, you know, put together. Um, most people did. I would never, for example, and I won't now, um, say that, um, you know, there was uh, a bank and name it that held, uh, you know, close to 40% of the silver market at one point. Um, but the news reports, I mean, people surmise it's J.P. Morgan Chase, and the news reports uh, in the public record showed that when Bear Stearns collapsed, that their silver positions got transferred over to J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, the CFTC, had to approve those positions because they, those positions, the layman positions, uh, I'm sorry, the Bear Stearns positions, uh, the Bear Stearns positions, when they came over, combined with JP's positions, were so large that they violated the position limits on which one trader could hold. So the CFTC had to approve that JP could take on the Bear Silver positions. So people want to do the math, they can do the math on who had the largest silver. Um, but there was an exception there that we made, and that's in the public record. Uh, what's not really uh, looked at too much is that we made that uh, uh, allowance for a time certain, and I forget exactly how long it was, but it was not years. It was, you know, months. Maybe it was three months or six months, or maybe it was nine months. I think it was probably six, but I, I don't recall. Um, and that allowance was for them to uh, be able to get out of those positions. Right. Well, one thing we didn't know right at first is that there was a uh, the head silver trader for Bear. Uh, he went with the silver positions to JP, and so he's trading at JP. And after this time was coming to an end, the, 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 the runway which we had given for them to get out of the positions in excess of position limits, they were nowhere close to getting out of them. Matter of fact, at one point, they'd bought even more. Now, here is the chart of the time period that Bart is talking about. Right there is the Bear Stearns-JP Morgan deal. 
and you can see that was in the middle of 2008 as the Fed is expanding credit, banks are melting down. Silver drops from 21 to 9, even through the Lehman implosion in September. Meanwhile, there was a shortage of actual physical silver going on, which is what I'm concerned about happening now, given the Fed's interest rate hikes in an environment like that. You've seen the impact of what some of these bank trading desks can have on the market. And hopefully this upcoming case will shed some more light on that because I don't think it is a straightforward trading environment. And anything to get a little clarity there, I think will be helpful for investors, especially many of whom turned to gold and silver as an inflation hedge because they saw even a decade ago where the Fed was heading, which is now in my opinion, in the later stages of playing out. Also, you can see here in a recent article by Pam and Russ Martin's Wall Street on Parade, JP Morgan Chase and Citibank hold 90% of all gold and other precious metals derivatives. I did comment on this a couple of weeks back yet. Worth noting, and I think fair, JP Morgan is the last bank in the US that should have a $330 billion involvement in precious metals in September 29th, 2020. US Department of Justice charged JP Morgan with rigging the precious metals and a criminal felony count to which it admitted. According to the Justice Department, the reading occurred for more than eight years. And again, that's what these fellows are on trial for now. And you heard Bart talk about how things went when they had a position that was a big position in the market. It sure seems like not much has changed. And when you see these same banks involved with such large derivative positions, at least I think it's fair to question what sort of impact that is having in the prices in the markets today. So I'll keep an eye on that trial and keep you posted as any new developments emerge. Uh, another note here, this was from Mike Gleason of Money Metals commenting on the trial beginning. Did have an interesting note. Turning to current market conditions in the U.S. retail bullion market, premiums have not yet risen in response to overwhelming demand over the past week triggered by the latest market correction. But that could change soon if bargain hunting persists with only a couple of exceptions. There are no shipping or processing delays at Money Metals. One note on that, premiums on Silver Eagles and Junk Silver are still pretty high. Premiums have come down on a lot of the other products, although as Mike mentions here, meanwhile, bureaucrats at the dysfunctional U.S. Mint have again fallen flat on their face, this time with respect to 2022 Gold Eagle production. Poor planning at the government institution will lead to shortages of nearly all types of gold eagle coins and higher premiums as well. Money Metals continues to encourage customers to steer clear of gold and silver eagles and choose from the many other more cost-effective ways to accumulate precious metal. Really no good reason to tie up good money in the high premium items when there are many other great options available. And I would agree with that. I know some people like the silver eagles. Although you're buying something other than just pure silver there, which... Obviously, everyone has different preferences and different needs, although I think it was just a worthwhile comment by Mike to pass along. And we'll see what happens to the physical demand as we move forward. I think there's some degree that there are people out there buying on the lower prices, some people who are sitting and waiting and wondering if the price will go lower, perhaps similar in a 2008 fashion. But in terms of the progression of the Fed and where things are going, as you probably saw, we did have the labor report come out last Friday, 372,000, more than expected. And this report positive and only fair to point out a comment here. The strong 372,000 gain in on-farm payrolls in June appears to make mockery of the claims that the economy is heading into 
let alone already in a recession. And I suppose that's fair, although I guess it depends on one's definition of a recession. Here you have the Atlanta Fed's model forecast GDP to contract by 2.1% in the second quarter. And at least anecdotally speaking to different people and different businesses, seems like things are slowing down. I'll leave it to you to decide your exact definition of a recession. But what this labor report did do is put the Fed more firmly on track for perhaps the 75 basis point rate hike in July, which will have its impact. We've seen that play out in the stock market, in the mortgage market, which we will cover later this week. One final story before we wrap up. It was on CNBC. Protecting Social Security benefits from rising inflation is high on voters' mind. 64% of the surveys, 1,300 respondents are very concerned the program will run out of funding to cover full benefits for future generations. The poll follows the release of the annual Social Security Trustees Report last month, which projects the program will only be able to pay 80% of benefits in 2035 if no changes are made before then. To be sure, Social Security cost of living adjustments already take place every year, but while those annual changes are made by one subset of the consumer price index, Democrats have called for switching to another index. However, some research shows the CPIE, the alternative index for the elderly, would not necessarily result in bigger annual benefit boost. And certainly my heart goes out to people that are living on a fixed income because they've not been placed in an easy situation and where that money is going to come from with the debt over 30 trillion and counting. I can't find another answer other than the Federal Reserve. Although just pointing out, I know I'm critical of the CPI formula in general. And one of the reasons for that is going back to something former President Obama suggested back in 2013 when there were concerns about the debt ceiling. And one of his proposals was an alternative benchmark, which would close 25% of the 75-year shortfall. And here you can see the Bureau of Labor Statistics has developed an alternative measure that changed CPI to account for the effects of economic substitution on changes in cost of living. The changed CPI has on average been 025 to 0.3% lower per year than the standard measure. And switching to the changed CPI as recommended in Obama's budget would close about 25% of Social Security's 75-year shortfall. So essentially the opposite of what we're seeing in that recent CNBC article now, but just showing that this CPI calculation is not necessarily based on figuring out the correct rate of how fast prices are going up, but a whole variety of other things. And unfortunately, that's how it often goes, although I will just continue to report what's happening and see the way that government and central banks are responding. And before we wrap up today, I'd just like to pass along a note from BlackRock Silver, who has brought us today's show. And BlackRock has recently hit a significant lithium zone at its Tonopah North project in West Central Nevada, adjacent to the company's Tonopah West project, which you've heard Andrew Pollard previously on the show talk about quite a bit. BlackRock has completed 10 reverse circulation drill holes in Tonopah North project drill holes as part of a scout drilling program to test for the margins of the Tonopah Caldera system. Drill holes targeting the ring structure, which plays host to silver and gold mineralization on Tonopah West project 
All drill holes penetrated cover rocks known to host lithium deposits in the region, including the TLC deposit, which is located within five meters of the drilling and a significant zone of lithium bearing material was intersected. Quick comment from Andrew Pollard. Though Tonopah is best known for the significant role it played in Nevada coming to be known as the Silver State, it also happens to be situated on the cusp of the most prolific lithium district in the United States, for which it is currently a hotbed of activity. Initial scout drilling at our Tonopah North project has encountered significant lithium mineralization in cover rocks and as we await remaining assays. We have expanded the drill program to try and zone in on higher grade lithium zones. So some good news from Andrew Pollard of BlackRock. Thank you to BlackRock for bringing us today's show. And for anyone who's curious to hear a little bit more from that Bart Chilton interview, what he reported when I had the chance to speak with him a couple of years ago before his passing, well, the link for that is coming your way now. 